Shalom. This is Rabbi David Tilkiger of Congregation Mayim Chaim, the Eastern Shores Messianic Synagogue in Daphne, Alabama. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast of our message from Shabbat service. We pray it is a blessing to you and that you see the beauty and light of Yeshua Meshicheinu Yeshua, our Messiah, in every word you hear. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your Shabbat. We thank you that... Um, no matter what's going on around us, that you're in control and that you love us and that your grace and mercy extends um, beyond what we can imagine. Father, we ask you to open our hearts and our minds as we open your word and prepare to hear from you today. Lord, we ask that, that not one word would be spoken that was not from your heart and not of you. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness and, and all the blessings that you give us. In Yeshua's name, amen. So, this week's reading is Parsha Tazria Metzora. And I'm just going to go ahead and warn you. This is kind of an uncomfortable section to dig into in mixed company. So, it fits for today, I, I um, feel like, with, with all the other technical issues we've had going on, why not? So, if nothing else, this is going to be real interesting, okay? So if everybody's ready, um, if you'll open your scriptures to Leviticus chapter 12, verse 1, and let's get awkward. So <laughs> verse 1 begins the section on Tazria, which is all about the biology of what happens after childbirth and the tuma or spiritual impurity that occurs as a result. This is followed by the laws of Metzora in chapters 13 through 14 which discuss the impurity linked to zarat, otherwise known as biblical leprosy. Right after that, we have chapter 15, detailing the spiritual impurity associated with bodily emissions, including, but not limited to, a woman's menstrual cycle. Now, when Rabbi David asked me to speak in his absence this week, I immediately said yes, because I love scripture. I love to talk about scripture anytime, anywhere, any place, any scripture. But as I reread this portion, <laughs> I have to admit that I started to worry about how I was going to present it. So I began preparing my heart and my outline for today's message. And I got about three pages in, and I told David and Danielle that my notes for this Parsha were beginning to look more like a human anatomy class than a spiritual lesson. To which the rabbi responded that I shouldn't let this topic cramp my style, and I should just flow with it. <laughs> Realizing that he was not going to be any help other than comic relief. I settled in <laughs> to what was my penance, apparently, and began to dig a little deeper into the text. I also tried to take a step back and look at this section as part of a whole. And as I did this, some poignant questions began to emerge, and I'd like to share this, those with you today. The first question I had was, why are Parshas, Tazria, and Mitzorah grouped together? Now, not only are they back-to-back -back sections in Scripture, but they're also read together on non-leap years. But the text itself appears to be going out of its way to connect these two issues of childbirth and zarat. 
Now, if I were writing the list of laws that we find in Leviticus, I would take all the laws um, about one topic and I'd put them all together in one section. And for the most part, that seems to be exactly what God did. But when we get to this week's reading, it appears that there might be an editorial error. You see, in my mind, the most logical thing to follow the section about childbirth and ritual impurity as a result of that birth in the presence of blood would be the section on the other occasion that a woman becomes ritually impure due to the presence of blood, the section on nidah or separation, which occurs about once a month. But that's not the cataloging that we find here. Instead of Nidah being discussed directly after childbirth, we find it three chapters later, after the discussion of Metzora, the leper. Why? What does this mean? And what connection exists between the laws of Tazria and the laws of Metzora? That's question number one. All right, question number two is this. What do Tazria and Mitsura have to do with what's going on in the larger scope of the story? How do these things connect to the events happening in the wilderness? This whole section of laws from Leviticus 11 to 15 basically interrupts some pretty dramatic events that Israel is experiencing in the wilderness. Reading through the story as a whole, it felt like being at the movie theater and I'm watching some blockbuster action film with insert favorite action star's name here. And at the climax of the most pivotal action sequence in the whole movie, a black screen comes up and the announcer begins to tell you about all the new copyright infringement laws and what's gonna happen to you if you try to bootleg a copy of the film. So the second question I had was, does this intermission of laws have anything to do with the plot that's unfolding within the camp of Israel in the wilderness? So as we dive in, we're going to see if we can answer those two questions. The first is, what do Tazria and Mitzora have to do with each other? And the second is, what do Tazria and Mitzora have to do with what's happening to the Israelites? Now, first, let's look at what exactly is going on in the story in the wilderness at this point. Israel has just come into the second year mark from the great exodus from Egypt. Mount Sinai experienced the golden calf, uh, Moses's two 40-day periods on the mountain. All these things have already taken place. This phase of the story begins on Nisan 1 in the second year. The Mishkan, in the ta which is the tabernacle, has just been set up for the very first time. And the people have gone through this whole process of sanctification for the Mishkan, for all the elements, and the priesthood themselves have also gone through sanctification. We see Aaron and his sons go through this purification ceremony, and then they're instructed that they must abide in the entrance or the doorway to the tabernacle for seven days lest they die. So for seven days, the newly cleansed priests um, must hover in this entryway. They are in this state of spiritual limbo. They're not yet able to pass into the Mishkan, but they're not in the camp anymore. They're in the in-between. 
Now, on the eighth day, the culmination of this purifying period finally occurs, and a series of sacrificial offerings are made, building up to this moment that the glory of God appears in the midst of the people. As it appears, this fire shoots forth out of God's presence, consuming this sacrifice on the brazen altar. Fire literally rains down from heaven. Now, this is the big reveal. God dwelling in their midst in the heart of the Mishkan is what everything has been leading up to since the moment that God sent Moses back into Egypt to bring them out. This should be the final scene. Fade to black, roll the credits, right? But what actually happens next is anything but the happy ending we expected. You see, no sooner are the sacrifices set ablaze by God's fire, but the camera pans left, and we see Aaron's two sons, Nadav and Avihu, with fire pans in their hands, making a beeline for the, for the same place where God's presence is hovering. The people in the camp are barely beginning to get up to their feet again after witnessing the first fireball. And suddenly, another blast of flame breaks forth and consumes the two brothers whole. What just happened? Imagine the utter shock of the nation, of Aaron, their father. His sons have been scorched right in front of him. Trauma and shock are the only words that I can think of to describe what he must be experiencing in that moment. But does Aaron fall to his knees in grief? Does he tear his garment and, and throw dust on his head? Does he run over to where they are? No, because he can't. You see, Moses steps in front of Aaron's impulse, and he warns him that he must not do any of those instinctual things that he wants to do, lest he should die too. Look at what Moses says to him and his remaining two sons in Leviticus chapter 10, verse 6 and 7. He says, Do not uncover your heads and tear your clothes, so you may not die. And he will not be angry with the entire congregation. But let your kinsmen, the whole house of Israel, mourn over the burning that Adonai has kindled. You must not go out from the entrance of the tent of meeting, or you will die. For the anointing oil of Adonai is on you. So they acted according to the words of Moses. Moses tells Aaron that because he is the anointed one of God, the chosen high priest who's permitted to come into proximity to the presence of God, that he must not become an avel or a mourner, and he must not leave the entrance to the Mishkan or he will die. You see, because of Aaron's proximity to the presence of God, he cannot come in proximity to death. God isn't responding heartlessly to Aaron's trauma. God is trying to preserve Aaron's life. As high priest, Aaron abides in this space that no other human can abide in. He has been dimensionally altered in some way that, so that he can be in God's presence in human flesh and live to tell about it. Until his transformation, surviving an encounter with the raw presence of God was not possible for human beings. Why is that? 
We all know that it occurred uh, as some type of result of the fall, but why? What really happened when Adam and Eve ate that fruit that made it impossible for all other flesh after them to live through a brush with God? My theory is, and what I'm proposing um, to you today, is that death happened. Death is what entered the world when Adam and Eve sinned. Death is what separates us from the living, eternal God. Death is the first enemy that showed up on the scene in Genesis, and it is the last enemy that will be destroyed in Revelation. And death is what God has been undoing on a micro scale from the moment he led Israel out of Egypt. Everything they've been through in the wilderness has been leading to the building of this Mishkan with the singular objective of its construction being so that God could, in some form or fashion, dwell in the midst of his people again. This cohabitation is the very first step in God's plan to undo what was done at Eden. Scripture tells us that the sting of death is sin. And we see that every moment of Israel's journey has been moving them toward purification from sin and the fingerprints of death. Now, with that in mind, let's look at what just happened. Just as the glory of God shows up and moves in, death enters the scene. And not just in the camp, but in the Mishkan. Nadav and Avihu were part of the priesthood that had been consecrated and, and were told to dwell in the entrance of the camp. They were in, in the temple proper, the, in the gates, in the house of God. Now, a reinforcement that death may just be the real key issue that we're looking at here can be found in the words that Adonai spoke to Aaron directly after his sons perished. And that's in chapter 10, verses 9 through 10. He says, Do not drink wine or fermented drink, neither you nor your sons with you. When you go into the tent of meeting so that you do not die, this is to be a statute forever throughout your generations. You're to make a distinction between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. This is the first thing that God says to Aaron after the traumatic death of his sons. And what does God focus on? He tells him, be careful and exact in how you approach me, lest you should die also. He reiterates that Aaron must make a distinction between what is holy and what is unholy. And he must separate between what is clean or pure and what is unclean. Now, what I learned from this is the following. As far as our storyline goes, death seems to be the key element being dealt with. And the first prescription given to prevent the contamination of death is to make distinction or separation between that which is unclean and that which is clean. Aaron has just witnessed death, and the first words that God speaks to him are instructions on how to prevent more death. Now, this narrative ends in Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus 16.1 picks up right where chapter 10 leaves off. God says, um, it says that Adonai spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they approached the presence of Adonai and died. Adonai said to Moses, 
Tell your brother Aaron not to come at just any time into the holiest place behind the curtain before the atonement cover, which is on the ark, so that he will not die. For I will be appearing in the cloud over the atonement cover. Even this is dealing with death and preserving Aaron from it. So if our Parsha is preceded by dealing with death and followed by dealing with death, then it would stand to reason that what's in between might also be dealing with death. But is our Parsha really dealing with death? When I read through this section, my initial impression is that what's being discussed here is the issue of tame or uncleanness. Um, it's, it's dealing with uh, becoming spiritually impure, not dead. In fact, the text itself uses this word tame over and over again as the, uh, the crux of the instructions, which are all about how to prevent somebody from coming unclean and what to do when inevitably someone does. In fact, the very first section is about childbirth, which seems to be the exact opposite of death, right? But to answer this question, we need to understand what Tame actually is. What does it mean to be spiritually impure? You see, not everything considered sin causes you to become unclean. Only certain instances result in a Tuma status, and most of them actually have nothing to do with sinning. And our partial lists only a few of those. Childbirth, plague of leprosy, and bodily emissions. But in all of these examples, nobody's actually dying. So if we can't make a leap straight into death, then what about can we figure out what these three things have in common with each other? How are they related? What's the common denominator between the childbirth, the plague of leprosy, and what we're calling bodily emissions? So let's look at the two most obvious first. Childbirth and bodily emissions. Now, the text tells us that the reason a new mother must go through this whole process of purification um, and must have an atonement made for her after giving birth is because of the issue of blood that occurs subsequently. It's because of the blood that she becomes Tame. The same is true for why a woman becomes Tame during her monthly cycle. So, okay, I can kind of understand this. I can look at this and make a connection here to death because life's in the blood. And any instance of the shedding of blood is also the shedding of life. This results in a brush with death. But what about the fact that a man becomes Tame if he experiences bodily emissions? Obviously, the issue here is not just the issue of blood. So what is it? I believe there's a clue for us hidden in the actual name of this Parsha. The section on childbirth is titled Tazria, which means to conceive, which is kind of odd because this whole section about childbirth and what happens after is named after conception not childbirth. Tazria is the root word zarah, which means to sow, figuratively to disseminate or plant, to bear or conceive seed, and it's the same word that's used for planting seeds in the ground. So really, our Parsha is more broadly focused on the seed. 
the seed that's sown at conception and the aftermath of that seed being brought into fruition. So now there's our link with the male counterpart of this Tame uh, equation. It's not necessarily just about the blood, it's about the seed. Great. So what does seed have to do with death? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> the words of Yeshua in John chapter 12, verse 24, will give us some insight here. He says, Amen, amen, I tell you, unless a grain or seed of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much fruit. You see, in this post-Eden world that we live in, even in the process of life, there is a certain amount of death. In order for tazria or conception to be possible, a seed must be sown, and in that process exists some form of death that must take place for new life to be produced and brought to fruition. Now, seed that is not sown in fertile soil, so to speak, or cast by the wayside, only equals death, with no potential for life. But Tazria, seed sown in fertile soil, conceives life. Now, there's some specific biological nuances in this section that I'm just not going to get into, but suffice it to say that although a woman is not considered explicitly Tame at the moment of conception, in the section focused on men, um, any time any seed is sown under any circumstances, both parties involved become Tame, at least until sundown. So even when a seed is sown in fertile soil and life is created, there's still an element of, of this issue of time occurring. The point is that even with an event that brings life, there's still this proximity to death. And why is that? You know, it almost doesn't seem to make sense. But I think there's another clue given for us about why that may be and it's hidden in the laws surrounding the purification for the pregnant mom now god instructs that a woman who's given birth to a daughter is unclean twice as long as if she had given birth to a son now as a mom who's been blessed with two beautiful amazing smart daughters and as a mom who's been cleaning up the bathroom after them for the last 16 years, I could give you some pretty valid arguments as to why this might be. But <laughs> the truth is that this type of uncleanness has nothing to do with the child's future sanitary skills. It has to do with the proximity to death. Although both male and female contain a piece to this seed puzzle, it's been given to women to be both the bearers and the yielders of life. When a woman conceives, she contains not only her own life, but the life of the child growing inside of her. If this life is a girl, mom holds twice the potential for life than she would carrying a boy, and thus twice the potential for death. Reflexively, when mom gives birth, 
Although it's a very joyous event, there is a measure of loss that occurs. This loss is what we refer to as postpartum. Now, there doesn't have to be an element of depression involved, but by definition, when you give birth, you're giving something up. Pregnancy is a oneness. It's the best example we have on earth of literally being one flesh, followed only uh, second by the relationship uh, of of the spiritual oneness between husband and wife. And even though at the end of childbirth we have this beautiful little baby in our arms, there has still been a loss. There's still been this brush with death in some unseen way. Anytime oneness becomes two-ness, there's a palpable loss there. So we're starting to see here how even a life-giving event like birth, even in that event, there's this underlying current of death that infiltrates in the literal loss of life that the mother experiences as, the, as this life moves from her body into the world. Um, and also, number two, by the fact that every measure of life comes with an equal and opposite measure of death. It's not just the child's life that mom has brought into the world, but at least until Yeshua returns, it's that child's future death as well. Now, let's see how the Metzora, or the person afflicted with leprosy, might be connected to this current of death, if at all. To find this thread, we need to look ahead in a future occurrence of this very particular plague, and it occurs in the book of Numbers. Aaron's own sister, Miriam, is stricken with Zerat. And to find our connection to Tazria, we have to examine Aaron's response to Miriam's illness. So we'll find this in Numbers chapter 12. Now, Miriam and Aaron have just committed the sin of Lashon Hara, or evil speech, against Moses and his wife, and God is very angry about it. Numbers 12, uh, verses 10 through 12, it says, When the cloud lifted up from above the tent, behold, Miriam had Zarat like snow. As Aaron turned toward her, behold, as Aaron turned toward her, behold, she had Zarat. He said to Moses, Please, my Lord, don't hold against us the sin we've committed so foolishly. Don't let her be like a stillborn baby who comes from his mother's womb with his flesh half eaten away. Aaron identifies Zarat as being like a stillborn baby. A Metzora, or leper, isn't dead in the physical sense, but has become, in essence, the living dead. So in this Parsha, we have two kinds of birth death. The good kind of birth death that we just discussed from Tazria, and the bad kind of birth death, the, the Metzora. A Metzora is like a seed that is unfruitful. There's some form of life there, but not fully. And as someone who is tame or unclean, this walking death must be quarantined. Just like when a woman is, is in Nida, she also must be in separation. And just like after giving birth, she must be separated from among the people. The death that passes over her must be quarantined. 
in order to protect everyone else in the community from contamination. She has to be separated out for a certain time to keep death contained in that bubble. So too, a Metzora must be separated from among the people. He has to be quarantined to protect everyone else from contamination and to keep death contained in this bubble within. Now, think about the analogy of the live birth versus the stillbirth. An unborn baby is not Tame, is not ritually unclean, but it too must be quarantined. Not outside the camp, but rather doubly enfolded within the camp and within the womb. And it must be quarantined to protect it from everyone else to keep death out of the bubble. In the case of the stillborn baby, this baby is also doubly quarantined. But something's gone wrong with that containment, and death has entered in. When we look further at the purification process for the metzora or the leper, something quite curious begins to evolve. Look at the key elements used in this ritual. Cedar wood, blood, hyssop, and two sacrificial offerings, one that dies and one that lives. These elements echo back to Pesach. The wooden doorpost painted with blood with hyssop and two sacrificial offerings, the one that dies, the lamb, and the one that lives, the firstborn of Israel, who are set free, becoming living sacrifices belonging to Adonai. Look at the results of Zerat. Place, you're placed outside the camp. You're utterly cut off from the people. A person stricken with this form of leprosy becomes impure in the highest degree possible. Zarat is what they call the grandfather of impurity. It's a primary source of uncleanness. It's the same degree of uncleanness as a corpse. Corpses, just like the firstborn of Egypt on the night of Passover. These similarities are what I like to call hyperlinks in the text. And when we click on them, they take us right back to Passover. Zarat is referred to as a certain type of plague called a negad, which is a word used only a handful of times in Scripture. In fact, the only other use of this term other than about leprosy is found in Exodus chapter 11, verse 1, where God says to Pharaoh that he will bring still one more plague upon Egypt, the plague of the death of the firstborn. It's the only other use of this word in Torah. Which makes me wonder, was the death of the firstborn in Egypt in some way a form of Zerat? The Metzora's purification appears to be a mini Pesach offering, but why? The Metzora is experiencing every aspect of, of death except biological death. And the fundamental loss of death is loss of connection. When a person dies, we say that they're gathered to their fathers or to their people so that they may be separate from us here, but they're together with the ones who have already gone before them. But the Metzora is cut off from everyone here 
without the aspect of being gathered to the other side. He's in this radical in-between of separation. Now look at how this is mirrored in the connection to Passover. Before the events of Pesach, the people were grouped as individual families. Each family slaughtered their own Passover lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, but after they went through the doorways, something changed. A nation was born that night. And when we see the effects of leprosy on an individual, maybe the part of the Metzora that's actually dead is the communal part. You see, we're each individuals, but we're actually made up of two people, our individual selves and who we are in the greater whole. We are all people, but we all belong to families. We all belong to different communities. And that identity is just as much a part of who we are as our individual identity. And as an individual cell, but also part of a community, we recognize that a single cell can't exist separately from the whole. On Passover, this collective entity was born when the people came through those bloody doorways. And once it was born, no single cell cut off can sustain life. Zarat is one of the only things that renders a person unclean that is an actual result of a willful sin. Zarat occurs because the person has engaged in some type of failing that's led to this affliction, this spiritual affliction that causes this separation. And the sins associated with Zarat are antisocial sins. They come at the expense of other individuals in the whole. Evil speech and haughtiness. These sins in particular are a symptom that the person has ceased to see themselves as a part of the whole. And as such, those sins lead to the physical reality of being separated from that community. So the Mitsura needs to undergo the process of being reborn back into the community in a mini version of the Pesach events, which were the original birth of the nation. He has become retroactively stillborn. New life must be reconceived in him. In other words, Tazria must occur. And once it does, the Metsura must go through the process of being reborn before he can be brought back into the camp. And even then, he must wait seven days outside of his own house, just as the priesthood had to wait seven days in the entrance to the Mishkan. Just as we are to purge ourselves of leaven for seven days during Passover. This Parsha speaks not only about our own passage from death to life, our, our ongoing struggle to rid our lives of the contamination of death and sin, but also that of Israel's journey into the very same thing. And this is exactly where we find them during this week's Parsha. The nation was first Tazria, or conceived, and God brought them to the birth alive. But even with the Mishkan, even with all the measures of sanctification and purification and quarantine, death still manages to find a way in. Death still corrupts and contaminates the nation, and the Metzora shows us that there is still sin in the midst that, once committed, threatens their birth as God's holy nation. But 
Where death pervades, life abounds, and God provides a remedy. Even for the Metzora, the granddaddy of all uncleanness, Leviticus also goes on to tell us something very strange. And it's about this condition of leprosy. Once the Metzora's flesh has become completely covered in white from head to toe, once all of his flesh has been completely engulfed, the priest is to declare him clean. He's no longer infected. And this makes me think of our own experience with redemption. We are to enter into Messiah, and our flesh is to be put to death with him retroactively on the cross. The only way into new life is through this complete and total death of our flesh. Now, just as Aaron remained consecrated as God's high priest and did not become defiled by death, so too we have a high priest free from contamination of death, one who has defeated death once and for all. And so too, like the Metzora, we have our own mini Pesach experience as we each come to the realization of our own utter corruption and separation from God and his community. And we choose to allow him to sanctify us with the sacrifice made with cedar wood and hyssop and blood, our Passover lamb, whose blood heals our affliction and through whom we're implanted with this seed of everlasting life. Just as in Tazria, and we too are born again into his kingdom like the leper in Metzora. Through this lens, we can see clearly how everything about this Parsha and the narrative of the children of Israel in the wilderness and even our own lives, just humanity's existence as a whole is really all about God's extravagant effort to save us from this affliction we call death. So really it all comes down to one basic moment, one fundamental question. Back at the foot of Mount Sinai, God tells us ahead of time that there are only two options that have been set before us, life or death. And he asks us to choose life. And to choose life means we must do it in every aspect possible. In our actions, in obedience to him, in our, in our words, because life and death are in the tongue. Which is exactly why um, Lashon Hara is the sin that instigates the disease of Zerat. We must also choose him in our thoughts, leading each one captive to the truth of his word. He's provided the way into the camp, through the gate of the Mishkan, into the holy place, and through that veil of separation. But we must decide every day whether we'll choose life and allow the seed he's planted in us to live and produce fruit, or whether we'll choose death and become like one who's been brought to the birth, only to allow death to come in and separate us from the presence of God. You can't have both. 
And unless you're born again, washed clean from the fingerprints of death by the blood of the Lamb, and unless you remain and abide in him, staying rooted in this place of consecration, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. My deepest longing and prayer is that for each of us, no matter what traumatic circumstances may be going on around us, that we would choose to abide in his presence and kingdom, and that we would choose life. Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you that everything you do for us is so extravagant, Lord. We thank you that you came to save us from death, that you didn't leave us in that state. And we thank you for this spring of eternal life that is welling up and overflowing inside each of us. Father, we ask you to give us the heart of, of that newborn baby, that new life in you, Father, that we would not take that for granted. Just remind us, Lord, that, that this life is a gift and we're accountable to you for how we choose to spend it. Father, I ask that you would hedge us in on each side, preventing us from, from leaving that tent, Lord, from leaving that doorway and becoming defiled. Give us the strength and the courage to put our flesh to death every day. Father, our, our, our heart's desire is to please you. And help us to, help us to give back to you what you've given to us, this this life that you've given, help us to lay it down for you, to give it back to you for your service as, as a holy, set-apart thing that is devoted to, to your service and your will, Lord. We ask all these things in, in the name of your precious Son, our Passover Lamb, Yeshua. Amen.